At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's the podcast. Podcast. Welcome to another Britflix podcast. Today I've got with me Danny Stack. Hello, Danny. Hello there. And what film are we uh, are we coming to talk about? Uh, today we're talking about um, my debut feature, which is a live action family film called Who Killed Nelson Nutmeg, which I've made I've made with my good friend Tim Clegg. We co-wrote and co-directed it together, Coen Brothers style. Coen Brothers style. So is it? <laughs> it's, does it does it have a, a film by and then it has both your names? The... Uh, we we haven't gone down that down that route actually. We've um, not given ourselves the I film a film by credit, uh, <laughs> but, but both our names are up there in tandem, which is good. Okay, now you're 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 uh, in, a, in in a in a brilliant position with this film in the sense that your world premiere is where? Oh, it's coming up in the London Film Festival. Yeah. Just the London Film Festival, Danny. Uh, amazingly, the London Film Festival is um, has invited us to screen uh, for their family gala, mm-hmm. and we've started submitting it to other festivals. So we haven't heard from any others. Oh, in fact, we did. Um, well, it's been nominated for best screenplay in a, in the International Family Festival, uh, right. which is great news. We just got that in. So yeah, the festival kind of. Uh, season for us is just beginning because we're still in the very last embers of post-production so we're just getting it kind of um, all I's and J's and T's crossed and dotted Okay, well let's give us a a brief synopsis then of of what what the film is Okay, uh, Who Killed Nelson Nutmeg? Well it's a live action family film as I say, it's about four kids on their annual summer camp holiday and they suspect that the camp's mascot, uh, a kind of six-foot squirrel mascot guy in a costume, Nelson Nutmeg, they suspect that he's he's been killed. Somebody's murdered him. Mm-hmm. So they so they set out to investigate. So you know the kids in the camp, they're a little bit too old. They think they're um, too cool for the camp. It's a bit boring now. So when uh, one of them thinks they see Nelson being pushed off a cliff. Uh, they think, you know, well, let's let's investigate that. Let's see what's going on. And I'm I'm fascinated to use the expression live action. I understand why. Yeah, I but, specify. But it, but, it, but it is interesting that for a family film now, it is because you wouldn't you wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily be something you'd be racing to say if you were saying I've done a thriller. You would it would the assumption would be it would be it would be live action. But obviously, in the day and age in this day and age of Pixar and the like. A family film that's not a cartoon or animated in any way is is increasingly unusual, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, I say live action in the pitch because it's the first question I get asked if I don't uh, of, oh, is it animation? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and it is rare to see these type of films nowadays, especially in the UK, 
There used to be a, a rich tradition of them in the 60s and 70s with uh, Children's Film Foundation films, and, you know, with kids in the lead roles, getting out and about adventures and investigations and stuff. Yeah. And then they kind of petered out and dwindled a bit in the 80s. In fact, I think even the, even the Goonies was probably the last film that had kids in the lead roles in an original story uh, of, you know, kids getting out and about in an adventure and investigating something. Uh, and then, you know, Pixar redefined the family genre, really, with their Toy Story. Mm. And then family films became big blockbusters of adaptations and pre-existing material. Uh, like the Harry Potters and stuff. So. so the Harry Potters, you know, so even though Harry Potter had kids in the lead roles for a good number of years, uh, it was still based on a massive success of Harry Potter. And then you'd get the exceptions like um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid or Horrid Henry, which are more in line with the audience that we're kind of aiming for. Uh, but again, they're based on really successful books, um, whereas we're coming at it from a completely original uh, stance and trying to pitch an original story and doing a, you know, kids and taking a chance by putting the kids in the lead roles. In fact, we have um, two girls as the kind of lead characters as well, so hopefully we can even pass the Bechtel test. Who knows? <laughs> now, with with that uh, with that booking of the film trend, then where where did this this idea sort of conceive itself with you and Tim? Well, uh, it's it's been interesting because myself and Tim kind of got together a few years ago to start our own podcast, which is the UK Scriptwriters Podcast. So we mm-hmm. we started that, we started that in two thousand and ten. And we were just, you know, meeting up once a month, having a bit of a laugh with the podcast, whatever. And then we started doing some work together, mainly with corporate kind of videos and things like that. Um, me writing the scripts and Tim kind of directing them. And then uh, we would kind of co-direct them together. Uh, we started doing that for some reason, mainly just have more of a laugh with the work because some of the corporate work can be a bit dry and a bit yeah. dull. Uh, and then we got a really nice corporate gig, uh, which took us to the Mediterranean to do a, an advert for P&O Ferries. Uh, so we did that. And then when we came back, um, I went around to Tim's to look at the footage and whatever. But as he was making a cup of coffee, he just said, um, you know, we should make a, a feature film and we should make we should make a kids film. We should make a family film because over the last few years in my TV writing, that's been my main area of kind of um, focus, mm-hmm. uh, um, writing for kids TV. Tim is a very kind of family and uh, kind of kids outlook with his kind of work. He's got a nice fun kind of tone to his kind of stories and scripts and stuff. So it seemed like a natural kind of fit to do something like that together, even though it kind of took me by surprise, to be honest. Because, you know, when you make your debut feature, normally you want all the directing work to be your own. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought Tim was possibly asking me to write the script and he would direct it and maybe we would produce it together. But he was he was like, no, who cares about that? Let's, let's just kind of <clears throat> combine our resources and combine our experience and make the film Coen Brothers style. So we just share the credit um, for the whole thing. So even though somebody might do more work in a certain area, 
ultimately it would just kind of balance out. So I thought I thought that was a really kind of gracious and generous kind of outlook and and an offer really, because Tim is a more kind of a filmmaker than I am. I've done my own shorts and stuff, but I'm not really technically minded or know a lot about cameras. Mm. Uh, whereas he, you know, he could probably light a scene and uh, do the camera all by himself kind of thing. Whereas I'd be struggling. So whereas I'm more experienced really in the screenwriting aspect of things, but the combination of those two skills plus all the work that we had done previously in terms of how we get along just really helped to kind of, you know, put our egos aside and just say, okay, let's, let's just crack on and do it because our, our only option was to do it micro budget level. Yeah. Uh, so we knew we just had to be really, uh, agreed and, you know, strict on ourselves in terms of just getting on with the work and just doing it without any fuss or, you know, uh, disagreements or complaints and stuff. I think it's important. An important thing you mentioned there is about about the fact that pair you get on. I mean, I know it sounds like an obvious thing to, yeah. be, work, to be working with somebody, but I think, and also, I think it's not it, it, to be equal in all skill sets would could it, could in its own way get get in the way of each other. Whereas the idea that you bring different skills, to, different strengths to the table, plus you get on, makes makes for a more room to get get it right, as it were. Rather yeah, than, rather, yeah. Than compete, rather than competing to get it right. Rather than competing, yeah. And you, um, I think if you can concede or acknowledge your um, weaknesses or the other person's strengths in terms of like, well, you know, you're not doing much in this kind of, uh, in this part of the process, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. uh, like at a lot of post-production now, Tim's been, Tim's been the post-production line manager, really, uh, which has been a godsend because I know having done one of my short films, the post-production process can be really demoralizing and can really break you. Um, and films fall apart in post-production completely. And that's why they need so much money and time. Mm. Whereas Tim's been really kind of managing that aspect of it. And um, while that doesn't give me much to do apart from maybe do social media stuff or, you know, look for ways to promote the film. Of course. So, yeah, but it's, so it's a good kind of split of labor, really. And it's worked out really well. So how, I mean, it, it, it's, it's funny that the, the way you describe that, that, that sort of inception as being, we should make a feature film. Because it's like, that's kind of the, it's that it's how it all starts, I think. Somebody, somebody has to say it for it yeah. to, for it to, it's, it's, you know, it might seem a crass comparison. It's like going for that first kiss. It's like, you might know someone that you'd like to work with for a long time. And that idea of, because a feature film is a big commitment, isn't it? I'm not saying it's marriage, but it's, it's a, it's a fair, it's a fair commitment, isn't it? Yeah, I think for us the timing was right because um, we both done a lot of short films. Uh, we tried to we tried to count how many Tim had done, um, but we had lost count at around sixty. So you know he'd done too many, and I'd done about four or five. Okay. Um, and but I even at that stage I was like I'm not doing short films anymore um, unless they're really you know nicely funded and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was just. All the advice that we give people on the podcast, all the advice that people give us, and uh, anywhere you go online, if you want to find out about making your feature film, it's just like you couldn't move for advice and you couldn't move for the technology is really affordable. You really have no excuses anymore. Uh, you just really need to crack on and do it. So we were like, yeah, you really, <laughs> you know, there's, 
there's no more reasons to procrastinate anymore. You just have to get out there and do it. Um, and once you make that decision, and once you make that first step into uh, kind of breaking it down into a practical uh, uh, thing that's going to happen, that's where the momentum really starts to build and that's when it becomes a reality rather than something like wouldn't it be great if we did this if only we had the location or if only we had even just ten thousand pounds or if only we had such and such it's like you can really bash them away uh, really early in the process just by starting just by saying we're doing it and setting up a meeting just to chat about it uh, and maybe even setting up a domain name for your website or or registering a production company name or anything like that just so that you get into the mindset of you know we're moving forward and we're doing it and i think that's that's what we did but we did so without any pressure it didn't feel not once in the process and um i don't mean to sound like this is a boast but not once in the process did it feel stressful or uh, you know, financially worrisome, uh, even though, you know, we spent our own money and stuff. Um, it, it, the timing was right. Everything just felt like we knew what we were doing. And then for the, for the areas that we didn't know what we were doing, we just got help and we asked people and they helped us. And so, it, you know, it was great. So what, so when, so when you've, when you've had this kind of coffee that's, that, that was, that turn into let's make a feature film. Yeah. Um, where did you start then with the idea that you've come up with? Where did that? Where did that? How did how did that get generated? Was that was what? that the pair of you sitting down spitballing? Was that you went off and came back with an idea and Tim interrogated with you or vice versa? Well, we came up with the idea about three months after we were in pre-production because okay. what what we did rather controversially maybe, or maybe, um, what's the right word, uh, unconventionally, mm-hmm. uh, we said, well, well, let's do a family film. Forget about the script and idea for now. Most people would say, get the script and idea right before you start anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were like, well, let's get, let's get our key heads of department first and a you know, production team of local um, guys that we know, uh, and let's get them in because we will, we will need some help, basically. Yeah. Uh, so we wanted people kind of doing work on our behalf while we did other, other things. So we um, we had a meeting with a few people, told them what we planned to do. You know, a micro-budget film, probably going to be set in one location, but it was going to be a family film, a live-action kids thing. Uh, and we probably, we didn't know the logistics at this point, but we were, you know, so we were throwing things up in the air like, we could shoot over the summer. We could shoot over weekends in the autumn. Once the kids go back to school, we don't know yet. What does it mean shooting with kids? Can somebody find that out for us? All that kind of stuff. Mm. So once people were um, keen to be involved, that gave us a little bit of freedom uh, to then work out some extra produ- production logistics about you know production company, how much money we would put in, how much money we would ask for the Kickstarter. And then once we had some key basic things like that in our mind, that's when we sat down and said, okay, let's work out the idea. So we just sat down where I'm sitting now in my kitchen um, at home. And it was about, it was over an afternoon. We just brainstormed 
a few ideas uh, and we went through your typical kind of cliched kind of ideas, uh, which would have been fun to do. But at the same time, we just thought, well, we've kind of seen them, um, you know, like maybe maybe somebody's granddad has a haunted house or a time machine in his attic, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and we just thought, well, we're going to shoot it locally where we live in Bournemouth and Dorset. So let's make the most of what Dorset has to offer. So if we can keep everything local in terms of where the location is and what the film is about, that would be even better for us practically, but also to promote the area in terms of, look, there's a great filmmaking community down here. There's great locations here. You know, we don't need to go to London. Uh, why don't you come here instead kind of thing? So we used that as part of our idea, and we came up with an um the concept of kids on a summer camp holiday um, and then they think they witness a murder and so they investigate. Uh, and to keep it a bit silly rather than really dark and serious, we made it the um, the camp mascot, which is kind of a six-foot squirrel guy, <laughs> uh, and came up, came up with the name. And the name, the name actually um, took, us, took us a few runs at that to get the name right. Uh, but Nelson Nutmeg sounded the most kind of uh, warm and appealing. Uh, so, yeah, and then that's we got the idea in an afternoon, really. But that was it. We just had the kind of log line. And I was keen that the title had to pretty much tell you what the story was about. Uh, okay. Because, you know, it's a kid's film. It's a family film. So if you say it's film's called Our Last Days by the Beach kind of thing. You're like, oh, what's it about? And you're all, you're already kind of boring somebody with the pitch of your film. Um, so I thought if you really kind of can um, make the title appealing or express the general nature of the story in the title, then we'll, that's, that's a good start. And even with the kind of logline, four kids go on a kind of camp holiday, and suspect the camp's mascot has been murdered. If that wasn't easy to pitch, then that would have been difficult as well, I think, because everything with a kids or a family film really needs to be crystal clear in terms of concept and then of the main kind of narrative drive of the story. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask that actually. What what sort of what what change what makes a film a family film? Because we we know we know the term. And we kind of know it when we see it, but I just it was interesting. I was it's interesting to see how clear you were about what that means as a as a project going forward. Yeah, well, it started with the concept, and then the overall kind of storyline that we had in mind, and then our next discussion was about tone, really, um, uh, what kind of tone the film would be, and what kind of age group it would be targeted at. Um, and I in kids TV, I write a lot for kind of ages six to twelve. But I was finding that ages six to nine often get overlooked because pre pre six years of pre pre six years of age, yeah, there's a wealth of um, um, TV like CBBS and Nickelodeon and stuff. Or preschool stuff is is really good. It's really actually you could watch pre a lot of preschool stuff uh, by yourself without any kids and really enjoy it. Because uh, it's really kind of fun, and the stories stories are really kind of clever and interesting. And then between six to twelve, like CBBC and things like that, the target age group is more the eight to twelve or nine to twelve. So it gets a bit more aspirational, or it gets a bit more kind of sophisticated. So between six six and nine, there's a bit of a gap sometimes. 
And so what you get is the six to nines, you know, either watching the preschool or they're watching the kind of um, slightly older stuff. And even in the cinema, something like, uh, you know, they might get Postman Pat, which is really for kind of under sixes. And then anything in between Postman Pat and Transformers, there's nothing really for them. Um, so I, I said to Tim, well, let's make it for the six to nine year old kind of age group. And, um, but also I knew from my experience writing for kids TV that that meant that it could still be really fun and it could be really exciting and it could be really interesting because, you know, kids TV is often maligned as something that's inferior when in fact there's a lot of really quality stuff going on and all the craft that you know and that people talk about in terms of storytelling and screenwriting, it applies to kids and, and family films even more so uh, because it has to be just really sharp. Um, it has to be original. It has, you know, kids are really sophisticated with the, with their stories. They can, they can see twists and turns coming a mile off. Um, you've got to be kind of funny, but not funny in a, in a kind of, uh, ironic kind of cultural self-referential way. I mean, you can be if you want to, but mainly you just need to be funny in it. Just what's funny to do with the characters or what's funny what, coming up with an original joke, that kind of thing. So often, often it can be more challenging than say writing an episode of EastEnders. Um, and I can say that because I've done both. I've done EastEnders. <laughs> um, so that was our focus for six to nine, but, and, I think Tim was just like, well, what can we get away with? And I was like, don't worry, we can actually get away with quite a bit um, as long as we make it fun and interesting. And anything that makes us laugh and anything that kind of um, we think would be really exciting, let's just put it in there because as a micro-budget indie, we can, we can do whatever we like because we're the bosses. Of course. Uh, but, you know, we, we were keeping an eye on it as well. We weren't doing something that was just kind of anti-genre. We wanted to make it really, this is for the audience, um, and it was a story just to appeal to as many people as possible, but targeting the six to nine year olds. So to do that, you know, we had kids in the lead role. So the main kids are 12 years of age. Yeah. So main, you know, when, when kids watch films or TV shows, generally the, the children in them are a bit older so that they can, you know, almost look up to them in a way. Uh, or reach reach up to whatever emotional things that are going on with them, even if they don't understand, they, they're always trying to understand, um, which is really appealing to me in terms of kids TV, because you can cover some difficult emotional aspects of being a kid yeah. that that not all kids will understand, but they will kind of they will certainly empathise for even even though they won't know why. Uh, which is kind of interesting. So yeah, we just we just went for it in that kind of frame of mind. We got a kind of cork board up, and we um, po posted a lot of um, what are they call index cards. Mm -hmm. And we bashed out a kind of rough structure, and we went for a five act structure. Uh, even though the script was going to be shorter than your typical screenplay, it was going to, it was going to be between 70 and 80 pages long. Um, we still went for a five-act structure just to make it a really fast-paced and tight story so that, you know, you'd never be bored kind of thing. Uh, 
So what's when when you um when you you mentioned about obviously the, the the craft element being just as challenging and and as true when you're trying to do the family stuff as you are doing traditional drama or any yeah. other genre. Um, what what were the um what were the hardest challenges to resolve in terms of the storytelling then from you guys you know from what you ended up with where where did you have the most trouble sort of resolving this this screenplay? Uh, the most trouble I think or the most difficult thing as you'll probably find with any other script, really, is uh, the plot and the plot logic. Um, Character-wise, I think we were pretty strong from the get-go. Um, and even we had a theme in mind that we wanted to kind of wrap the story around, which worked quite well from early on. Um, so that kind of stuck. So the main challenge then was trying to make the plot work so that it made sense even though it was a silly kind of murder mystery type thing that, you know, wouldn't happen in real life. Um, so if you imagine something like Scooby-Doo meets the famous five yes. by, by way of the Goonies, that's, that's kind of where we, where we're, where we're at. So then when we were trying to figure out why certain characters would do this or why they, why they would even think that of, of a mascot being killed, and then just the logic of like, well, what would they do? Mm. How would they investigate it? How thick are they? You know, we've, we've got to make it kind of really compelling that, you know, somebody has killed him and, and they have to uncover the right kind of clues or they, you know, we have to believe that there's a proper thread of investigation going on. Well, it's funny you say, because I, I don't know if you've seen, I mean, it's going to like a crass comparison, but it was something struck me when I watched. Have you seen the film It Follows? I haven't yet, no, but I'm right. looking forward to it. It follows is is a is a classic curse film in the sense of you know um, M R James is in the runes that got made into Night of the Demon, or even more recently Drag Me to Hell, the Sam Raimi one. Yeah. But in it, you, you, your core cast is a group of people who are kind of fourteen to nineteen, and it's all down to them to resolve yeah. their problem. Not in the same way that you're used to seeing teens in a horror film just queue up to be killed. Because yeah. that wasn't the story. This was about the mystery of the curse and how to get rid of it. Okay. And the parent, the adults in the film were like the housemaid and Tom and Jerry. They were just a pair of feet that you saw. Oh, yeah, so you yeah. knew you knew they were present in their life. But as far as the story goes, it was what happens when a bunch of kids and that group collective of kids. And you mentioned Goonies. That's very similar as well. Where the group, the group, the group mind, the group hive think of a group of kids is not as is just as stupid as any mob. Yeah. Obviously, when they're kids, it's sort of times maybe ten. Well, but, but if they're friends, then then they can kind of the trust between them becomes that thing that you don't need to say. Well, yeah. Well, even working out the logic, as we say, it's mm. it's like you could do a version where okay, they don't go to their parents and they don't go to the authorities and they just start investigating. But I remember sitting around this table thinking, well, that's a cheat, isn't it? I mean, surely if you see somebody being killed, the first thing you're going to do is tell your parents. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they don't believe you, then you're going to tell the, the owners that something's happened. So, we, you know, we put into the story. That's the first thing she does when she sees it happening. She goes to her dad and says, you know, I've seen this happen. But of course, he, you know, he just doesn't believe her. Um, and especially because she's been out when she wasn't supposed to be. So he actually wants to punish her. Um, 
And then when they go to the uh, the owners, they find that it's kind of the, the camp has a new manager played by Bonnie Wright, who's Ginny Weasley from Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of the stern new manager. So she becomes like number one suspect in, in the fact that uh, Nelson has been killed because they go to her and say, look, he's been killed. And she's like, you know, disparages them saying, no, he's not. And he's right behind you. And they turn around and there's a, a replacement Nelson, not Meg. And so it's just like, oh, my God. So that, to me, when we were working that in, working that out in the story, made it more interesting and more fun uh, okay. and more original rather than, you know, you see Nelson being pushed off the cliff and then you meet in the secret den and you're like, guys, I've just seen Nelson um, get bumped off. Let's investigate. And it's just like, well, why haven't you told anybody? <laughs> yeah, so I suppose you're saying, aren't you, dramatically speaking, that the, there is no drama at first because they're just, they, they've just seen something that's horrible, scary. So you tell the authoritative figures, your parents and the people in charge. Mm. And the fact that they dismiss them or ignore them or whatever it is, they, they, they don't go, okay, we'll sort this out. It then becomes down to the kids and that becomes your story, doesn't it, I suppose? Yeah, and that's our almost our break into, from Act 1 into Act 2. It's just like, well, okay, we've, we've tried our parents, we've tried the kind of owners... Um, nobody believes us, so let's just crack on. Who's in, kind of thing. And in a, in a funny way, in craft terms, it's like the, 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 the sort of call to action is we don't want to sort this out, and then it becomes we have to sort this out because nobody else is, seems to be interested. Exactly, exactly. Nicely put. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. So, so um, uh, in terms of the pair of you writing, now you said you'd get on, and that was part of the reason why this project sort of come about. Yeah. So how do you how do you do how do you divide the labour up when you're when you're because obviously it's fine in the spit and I've done it myself. You know, it's fine in the when you're in the room together, writing yeah. index cards, and it's all very exciting. There's lots of energy in the room, and anything goes, and blah blah blah. Then somebody's got to go and wait, or both of you've got to go away and write something, or do you sit in the same room and, like the old, like you see in the movies, where one person sat behind someone, stood behind someone in a chair, and going, yeah, da 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 da, type this, type this. And... Well, what we did was, um, I wrote a treatment yeah. based, based on what we had done on the index cards, just to kind of t- tie it all together nicely in, in the, uh, a nice flowing story, so that all the logic was there and all the characters were there and all the rest of it. Uh, Tim then worked on a beat sheet, a very detailed beat sheet, uh, almost like a scene by scene, um, rendition of the story. Okay. Uh, where he would put, you know, just, uh, very simple bullet points of what was happening, even lines of dialogue and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't a, a slavish beat sheet in terms of it didn't fully correspond with the treatment I'd written, but it was just ideas. And a possible map forward for for the story, and then what happened almost by accident, I think, but it probably would have worked out this way anyway. Um, I went to a I went to a BAFTA networking event, and it was about kids' family films. Right. And I bumped into the producer of Howard Henry, and I told her what I was doing, and I asked her for advice, um, and she said, "If you can make your film seventy minutes long." that would be a really ideal for the target audience you have in mind. 7-0. Seven, seven, oh, seven, 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 oh. So I thought, well, that's interesting. 
I, I was anticipating that it would be 80 minutes long. So even though, you know, 10 minutes, not much of a great deal, I thought 70 minutes is a pretty short screenplay. And for the amount of plot we have kind of in mind, I thought that's that might be a little bit of a problem. So on the train home, I just started writing the script just to see the kind of pace and the tone and to see if, you know, just if I could get that kind of fast-paced flow to it. So I'd, I'd written about 10 pages on the train home, mainly because I had the treatment and I had Tim's beat sheet to kind of work from. Yeah. Um, and so I, was, I could pull from that. So I didn't follow the treatment or the beat sheet exactly as they had laid out, but it just gave me that nice kind of guideline um, and kept me on track as well. So what I did then was I just followed on from that and I wrote the first draft. Um, but it only took maybe two or three weeks because we, because we had so much content to pull from in terms of the treatment and the beat sheet. So I knew where I was going. And even if I went off course a little bit or changed the scene a little bit, I mean, I'll give you an example. There was one character that Tim came up with, actually. Tim came up with the character of Swindon, who is the kind of lead character's older brother. And when Tim pitched me Swindon, I was like, you know, if I was writing this story by myself, there's no way on earth I would ever, ever come up with a character called Swindon or what he does kind of thing. Yeah. And, I was, and I was a bit unsure as to whether it would work or if he should be put into the story. And then when it came to the script, I was the first person to write him in to the script. Um, and at that point, he wasn't obsessed by aliens. And in the film, he, he is obsessed with aliens. <laughs> Uh, so, and that just came about as I was writing the, him into the script. I just kind of made him, it just, you know, just popped into my mind as I was putting him down into the final draft kind of document mm. that he was obsessed with aliens. And then it just kind of clicked. And, he, you know, he almost, he, I think he's nearly everybody's favorite character. He kind of steals, steals the show in a, in a little way. And the character, and the actor who played him was just terrific as well. Um, so that, that was an interesting thing. So again, we just had, you know, we had content to pull from, um, leaving room for a bit of spontaneity as well, and and you know the magic of writing to happen. Oh, yeah, because I mean, because I mean, because for those people that are sort of looking at writing, I mean, it, you, you, you've you've described a, f a fairly a fairly evolutionary pro process there, haven't you? Whereby, you know, it's it's let's do a family film, let's do a single location family film. And and then and then that all start, that all started things going with other people you were hoping to work with and and and, and how those those deck chairs got in place. Then you sat down and did the whole kind of what film are we going to do then? What is this family film in a single location? Yeah. Then it's a brief document plus a slightly more expanded but not the same document, and then that information f directly feeds the screenplay. But like you say, still allows room for the magic of what is the fun bit in writing, which is discovering that somebody's UFO nut or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and also with the um, one location thing, once we realized it was going to be in a, a summer camp, uh, you know, we set one of our uh, team on the lookout for, you know, a summer camp uh, or a caravan camp in the area that we could shoot in. So we just started, we continued kind of bashing out the story while somebody did location recce. Uh, and then they came back with a list and then we went, you know, wreck, wrecking with them. And so, you know, there was just always an ongoing sense of momentum. There was always something happening. Um, and that really helped. And, 
you know, things that might appear like stumbling blocks or even uh, stumbling blocks in your mind in terms of nobody will want, you know, allow us to film here, will they? And then you ask and they're like really laid back and they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I guess, that, I mean, I've, I've spoken to people before who've, who've, uh, who've made that the conscious decision not to shoot in and around London and I think that's been most of the people's experiences that I've, I've, I've had on the podcast is that they've had that kind of reticence of, you know, we really would like to shoot there. So do we, and then the, the, the thought of it just is, well, we should just ask him then. And then, and then, then there's the kind of, yeah, go on. Sure, of course you can be, and because I think, I think in, I think what happens in just comparing London to, to, to maybe other provincial parts of Britain is that the immediate thought isn't film equals lots of money. Yeah, you, know, you can you can present yourself in quite an honest light, can't you? When you when you're talking to people who you live near or work near, you know, when you're when you're talking about shooting in a local area, completely, completely. And that was one of our, our main um, choice of approach as well when we kind of approach people was to was just to be completely upfront with them all the time in terms of what we were doing and why and how, so that there was no false expectations from anyone, from anybody in the crew or anybody we dealt with. Everybody knew what the story was in terms of how we were doing it, why we were doing it, and what we expected once we had finished, all that kind of thing. And the best thing about the location was that, you know, when you see the film, it doesn't look like a one-location film uh, because it's set on the coast. And the uh, Freshwater Beach, which is down in Bridport, where we filmed, is just perfectly situated, and it's got kind of the Jurassic coastline on either side of it. And, and so we had we had options to kind of make it look nice and make it look varied, even though we we were you know we were living in the in two caravans down there while we shot kind of thing. But I think that's I mean there's there's, there's the single location, and obviously at the, at the one extreme there's buried with Ronald Reynolds in, in oh, a yeah. coffin, and then this single location as in a holiday camp because. The point, the point being is that you're not having, the, the point of single locations, you don't have to keep lugging and moving all your kit around the country. If it's moving it across a site, I'm guessing that's, that, there's a little bit of delay to set up and, and shoot, but it's not the same as having to move everybody to a completely different geographical location, is it not, on the practicalities front? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that saved us so much time and money. And also we had a great DOP, um, guy called Sam Morgan Moore. We just rocked up, we'd never worked with him before. He just rocked up in his van. And in his van, he has all his kind of kit and equipment. He can even sleep there if he needs be. And he's just like, you know, from day one, he was just like, okay, we need to do this fast, you know, because you don't have the same shooting time with kids on set legally as you do with kind of uh, over 16s. Of course. Of course. So it's, it's shorter days. So we really, you know, you, you don't have time to faff around. So Sam was kind of the perfect guy for us because he could set up quickly and he could shoot quickly. Uh, and he's just a no-nonsense type of um, guy who I'd highly recommend, actually, to anybody who's looking for a DOP for their shorts or features. He's up for anything. Now, that gives me a good segue. Um, and, and so when, you, when you've got... when you've, We've talked a lot now about the, about the, the, the idea and the, and the concept coming together and then obviously scripting it. Now, when, when you were finished on that script and you were moving forward into the kind of the pre-production to, pr to produce as opposed to that, what you described as that very early pre-production where you basically started, I guess, getting your ducks in a row, I suppose. It's like, can we do this? Yeah. So to, so to speak. When you're moving forward to the, we're going to do this pre-production phase. Um, when you, when you were, when you were working with the DOP and people like that, um, 
and you're the heads of the department. What on the page seemed like the most insurmountable, and and sort of what were the, you know, given that human and financial resources are not are not unlimited, um, what what were the things that were un, seemed insurmountable, and then and then obviously the, you know the breaks you got, how you work around those constraints, you know, any 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 sort of uh, any any episodes from making the movie you can think of. Well, we had a couple of stunts in the film, okay. uh, and we you know one including a drone. Uh, because we, instead of just kind of getting a drone to get us some nice footage, we used the drone in the film that the kids used to kind of spy around the camp kind of thing. Uh, so that was an interesting uh, kind of challenge. Uh, I don't think it was, it didn't turn into a problem, but it could have been a problem. Um, well, there was one particular day during shooting that it was too windy to kind of film. And uh, I found that quite stressful that day because it was I didn't know what to do in terms of to, how to rearrange the schedule or, uh, you know, should I just shoot anyway with the wind being as bad as it was? Um, but that's when your crew and everything can really help you out. You know, the first AD just puts a hand on your shoulder and says, you know, we can easily just swap thing, these things around and maybe do this tomorrow. And, you know, and because of that, we have you know, the amazing scene that we always planned rather than something that was just windy and ridiculous. Um, and then the stunt that we had, that was kind of problematic, but it turned out to be okay. Uh, because even the stunt guy that we tried to get in to kind of supervise, he, he, he didn't, he turned us down thinking that it was too risky. Really? <laughs> uh, which is funny. And so, we ended up doing it ourselves, uh, but completely, you know, because we were looking at it going, this is, this, it doesn't need to be complicated. It's not as, it's not as dangerous as he thinks. Uh, but, you know, the, the kid who had to do the stunt, he was nervous. Um, and, and justifiably so, I guess. But, you know, uh, so that could have really fallen apart or been a, a, a difficult thing. Or, you know, maybe even got into problems legally or insurance wise. Uh, but that that all worked out okay as well. Come the shoot as well, so that was fine. Uh, we shot on 4K, the Blackmagic 4K. So technically, um, there's a lot of challenge in terms of the amount of raw data and footage. Yeah, that's burning up a hole in Tim's studio as we speak. Uh, so that's but that was something we kind of catered for early on. The first thing we did was went to the um, uh, what's it called the What's the exhibition in XL in London where they have every year about cameras and stuff? You're asking me. Oh God, I've forgotten the name of it. It was the first thing we've done. Any we did anyway, and Tim Tim lined up to buy the Blackmagic 4K because he could use that on his corporate stuff as well. Yeah. Um. So that all worked out. Uh, Deep the DP had never worked with the Blackmagic before, but he really got into it and really enjoyed it uh, because it it just it was a camera that worked when it when you told it to work rather than you know crashing or anything stupid like that. Um, and I guess I mean that's and, and, and that's a, a, an important thing to understand, isn't it? With, you know, the, the, with digital with digital technology, is that a camera is just as susceptible as a laptop to to the to the to the to the wild, wily ways of uh, ones and zeros. And equally, when you're shooting 4K, which I'm guessing eats up data, somebody's oh. got to, somebody's got to manage all that, haven't they? In terms yeah. of shoot, that's got that. I mean, did you have somebody? Just whose job it was to make to manage all that process of 
yeah, we, days. we got on-site editors uh, as much as we could in terms of to offload the footage and start and uh, transcoding it over to you know Mac tops uh, uh, to Macs and stuff, mm. uh, and that was really helpful. And then so, even some rushes could be together as we were as we were kind of shooting, which was fun. Um, so it, it felt like a proper production in that way, rather than just like a CD or pants micro budget thing. <laughs> even though that's exactly what we were, um, and you know we had to shoot over weekends because we couldn't afford to take the kids out of school. So initially, I thought that was going to be a problem. You know how much of a pain that that was going to be. Uh, and I remember reading about Christopher Nolan's first film. Film is it um, following? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which he shot over weekends. And I remember reading about that, thinking that must have been a pain in the backside. Uh, but when we did it, it was, it was, it worked out really well. It was, it, you know, it just helped you kind of during the week, uh, kind of see what you needed to do in terms of pickups and any, any prep you needed to do for the upcoming weekend so that when the weekends came around, it was kind of a smooth, uh, or smoother production process. So yeah, that worked out really well. So. I think micro budget over weekends is very possible and actually conducive rather than something that needs to be a problem. Now cast casting the movie, obviously that's a key a key part of, of any of any film. And you've mentioned uh, Bonnie Wright already, she being uh, seen in the Harry Potter films. Yeah. Um now you've like you've and you've also mentioned obviously being uh, a cast who are under the age of six a lot of the cast being under the age of sixteen and that's yeah. key that's key cast members isn't it did, how did you go about how did you go about casting those did you did you apply the same rules of the kind of local area as to casting out or did you did you go further than that yeah we went completely local again and that was our big selling point there we started off with the local theatre schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and did audition. We call them private auditions, just in terms of us going around and kind of pitching ourselves to the schools and to the kids, and if they wanted to audition. So we did. Um, we did a few of them, and we found kind of a good, maybe a dozen standout actors. Um, and that took about two months, three months, maybe. Uh, and then we did a big open casting day because we were still a couple of. Actors shy of key roles. Can I just rewind you a second there? So that took two to three months. What was what was the what was taking what, what took the time there? Was it just just going to different places and assessing what you had, or was that yeah, a time was, you was that at a time you allowed to do all that? It was one or two visits to each theatre school, really. Yeah. Um, and each say there's maybe maybe there's about a half a dozen theatre schools, so uh, you would visit once and you would meet everybody. And you'd film them, and then okay. you and then you maybe go back again and just cherry pick the ones you, that you thought were um, had the most potential, and do a little bit more work. But that was at the theatre school, so we didn't really have as much time or as much focus as we as we'd want. So then, what we did was invite the shortlist, as it were, or the top people to our own kind of office um, to do some workshops and and. And things from the, things from the film itself, just to get a mix and to get a sense of how certain kids look together or work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so that took about two or three months. Okay. And, and then, and then we did a big open day casting, which we had no idea how many people would turn up. 
uh, in the end, about 300 kids turned up, uh, which was crazy. That's, that's, uh, that's X Factor style. It was X Factor style. So I'm only, I'm, I'm, in hindsight, I regret that we didn't do any kind of behind the scenes video of that day because it was just mental. I'm uh, sure you had enough on your mind at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, have a few, we have a few photos and stuff, but that was, that was, that was all good. Um, but we actually found two of the main cast from that open casting day. Uh, which took me by surprise because I didn't think we'd really find anyone. Uh, but we found Swindon during that open casting day. Joan, Joan Alexander is his name. Great, great kid. And uh, we found JJ Brown, who, who plays Shiv, the kind of tough guy in the film. Uh, and they just really stood out. Um, we brought them in again to kind of meet the other kind of top shortlisted kids. And we mixed and matched and see, tried to see who was the best together. And then, then we chose. But then, most importantly, we kind of sat down with the kids and the parents because you're you're almost auditioning the parents as well because they're likely to be the chaperones. Of course, yes. Uh, and we said we we told them what was going to be involved, and you know, you know, ideally there was no backing out kind of thing because we were shooting over weekends. So once you were in, you were kind of in, uh, you know, because who knows with kids, they might be going, oh, this was fun for two weeks, but I don't feel like doing it anymore. Uh, or I've just got a big job um, and I'm not going to do it anymore. And so to give an example of why that was important, mm. one of the kids actually got a role in Game of Thrones while we were shooting. Um, so that, you know, that was tremendously exciting for everybody. Um, there was no way we didn't want her to do it, but it kind of made our schedule a bit of a nightmare uh, trying to accommodate it. Uh, but the worst case scenario would have been her just kind of no longer being available to be in our film because of Game of Thrones. So in the end, it worked out. But it's just like, you know, everybody was was fully committed to making Nelson Nutmeg. So that was that was really great that everybody just banded together to say, no, we're in and we were in right to the end kind of thing. So let's uh, let's remind people then when when can people see it at London Film Festival? Excuse me. When can people see it at London Film Festival? It's on Saturday, the 10th of October. It's the official world premiere, uh, but it, tickets are available. Uh, we're on just before Studio Ghibli's last film. Uh, so if you're thinking of going along to Stu Studio Ghibli's film, come along to ours beforehand and have a bit of a laugh. Uh, there's education, there's an edu there's an education screening on the 8th or 9th of October, I think, uh, which is for teachers and students, but it's free. So if you um, if you're involved with kind of teachers or students, get them along. I think there's a few tickets available still. And then beyond that, we don't have any kind of um, distribution in place or anything at the moment. But we're speaking to we're just beginning to speak to kind of various people about that. Um, also still doing the festival thing, just to kind of get it out there and kind of raise the profile a bit. And out of, I mean, out of interest, I mean, anyone that listens to Britflix will know. My my bias is towards, from a personal preference, is, is horror films. So I'm kind of aware of that world. But is is there a, is there a kind of as much as horror is a genre that is clearly defined by the festivals that happen around the world? Is the is the family film as as defined in in festivals? Uh, yeah, there's a good few out there actually. There okay. is a good few out there. Um, you, you know, if if it's not your area, you won't have heard of them. But there are a few kind of big mm. ones. 
Uh, Honestly, I'm still hearing about horror ones. I just, I just know there are specific horror ones. I just wondered if there were specific family ones. Yeah, there's, there's, there are specific ones, and then a few of the big festivals have their own family section, like London or Sundance, um, and things like that. So that's that's good. So we're hoping we can get into big ones under the family kind of radar, mm. and and then also appear in the specific family ones. Uh, the big selling point for us is that we're the only ones doing films like this from this country. So that's unique and that's a good kind of flag. So we're hoping we can catch attention that way, but also kind of shake up the industry a bit here to say, let's make more films of this type uh, because we think the genre could make a strong comeback and should make a comeback. And yeah, then, I think the, the, the Son of Rambo is about the only one I can think of. Yeah, and that, but that's more coming of age, you see. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. It's, it's like you said at the beginning, it's that bit older, aspirational yeah. side of things, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Um, so, you know, even Son of Rambo was great and everything. It's um, Nobody's in a rush to make those type of films. No, true, true, true. Uh, but also, we want to make them more kind of comedy-orientated or just kind of adventure-led, uh, just fun for all the family, basically. Okay, well, look, well, I mean, I'll, I'll put in, I'll put the details for the uh, London Film Festival in the show notes and any any sort of social media stuff you want me to put in, link to the movie. Sweet, sweet. Now, finally, one last question I'd like to ask everybody is to recommend us a favourite British movie, if you could, okay. please. Uh, I'm going to keep it local again, just to keep Go it on, on topic. And uh, it kind of ties into everything we've been saying. Uh, a friend of ours down here called Siki Singh mm-hmm. uh, made his debut feature called Emulsion. Uh, and it's a, it's a David Lynchian style thriller. Okay. Uh, about a guy who kind of, who, whose wife uh, mysteriously disappears and he becomes obsessed with finding her. But in doing so, kind of, uh, borders the edge of his own sanity and, and he, he kind of gets involved with murky individuals and he doesn't know what's real or what's not anymore. And, you know, it, he made it a couple of years ago, but it's just kind of, it's on the indie circuit now and it's just been kind of uh, nominated for a load of awards and kind of the Milan Film Festival and stuff. But it's a real stylish, Lynchian, uh, kind of sexy thriller and it really inspired us to kind of get out there and make our debut feature as well because you know Suki just went out and did it uh, very much in this kind of same way we did Nutmeg and we just thought well we can't have him having bragging rights forever on making his debut feature we'll we'll have to catch up a bit but you know it's a really cool um, kind of sexy thriller it's got Sam I can never pronounce his surname Hugan He's he's a Scottish actor but he's now in Highland is it Highlander? Outlander? One of the Outland, Outlander's the new TV series. Yeah, he's he's one of the stars in that now. <laughs> okay. Um, and so I would say, yeah, Emulsion by Suki Singh. Check it out. Well, look, thank you very much for giving us your time on the Breakfast Podcast to talk about who killed Nelson Nutmeg. And very and very good luck with it. Yeah, thanks a bit. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.